0: better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have another face in your class. And we are live. Welcome, folks, to episode 3402 of the Survival Podcast. I think the uh, Number in the title on the video setup is wrong. I'll fix that later in case anybody's actually emotionally traumatized over the number not matching. Uh, it has to do with the mistake. Yes, Dun Dun Dun. Jack was wrong. Uh, last week, I actually had scheduled the show to run on Thursday, forgetting that we had made changes and expert counsels on Thursday now. Uh, so it got deferred. So I changed the graphic, but I didn't change it everywhere. Again, I will fix that in case you are emotionally traumatized by a missing number, as I know some of you are from time to time. What are we going to talk about today? Hydroponics. And we are not really going to talk about hydroponics today from a standpoint of, like, a commercial, even small-scale commercial uh, hydroponics operation. We're not going to talk about it as, like, a primary method of growing your food. We're actually going to talk about it about the most informed today is going to be from a standpoint of eating really great salads through the winter. And having things in winter that generally speaking you don't necessarily have available to you like just cut five seconds ago basil. To me there's something really nice um there's something really nice about it being like February. I look outside, even here in Texas, maybe there's some snow and ice on the ground. The ducks aren't even happy it's so cold and they like cold and uh, what have you, and uh you, 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 you're putting some stuff together. Maybe you're just having a meal, and, and not even a salad. You can just go to your little hydro system and pull a few great, big, beautiful leaves of fresh basil off, roll them up like a little cigarette, and chef and That's just long, thin, and put that on top of your food, and, and you've literally added that to your food seconds after you cut it. To me, that allows you to feel... And I hate the way people use this word today, but it does allow you to feel somewhat privileged, right? Like not everybody just now you had to work for it. So it's not really a privilege, but not everybody can just do that. It's a way of making yourself uh, feel more in tune with nature at a time when we're in our winter darth. It also is a really, really great way to start plants. We'll allude to that a little bit, but we're really coming at this today from having fresh salads a few times a week for a family of four with an investment between seventy-five and two hundred bucks that pays for itself the first the first month or two of operation. That's what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about three different ways to do it. One called crackkey, one that we would call pump driven, and one we would call air pump driven. And all three of them have a place. Uh, we're not really gonna talk about aquaponics at all today, though I do think aquaponics in many ways is a superior way to grow food to hydro. However, It takes more skill, it takes more time, and there's more potential for error, and there's more things that can go wrong. And an aquaponic system isn't something like if I'm leaving for two weeks in the middle of winter to go vacation in Hawaii or something, I can just flip a button and switch off. Somebody's got to keep a little bit of an eye on it. So anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. I have recommended that you keep some silver and or gold in your wealth portfolio for, well, as long as there's been a survival podcast. If you knew me before TSP, and a few of you might have actually done that, you'd know that I've always recommended that. 5% of your net wealth is what I personally recommend. Up to 10% is what I'm kind of okay with, but you're a grown man or woman, do whatever you want. However, why get your silver and gold from Jam Bullion? Well, they sponsor the show that you love, and they've done that for 10 years. They give you discounts on silver and gold if you're an MSB member. Nobody can see discounts on stuff like that, but, but I do. Um, they ship out all your orders over $200 for free, and they have better pricing than their competitors. So why would you go anywhere else other than JM Bullion? Next up today is BulkAmmo.com. Ammo is what I call the other precious metal, right? Gold and silver are precious metals. Copper jacketed lead would be the other precious metals. And and if you think about it, you really do need ammo if you're a gun owner or you have an expensive club or something you can take to the pawn shop and get some money for it. What you don't have without ammo is actually a gun that can do what a gun is designed to do, whether it's defend your family, allow you to train effectively, put food on the table, or just give you recreation and enjoyment through sport shooting. Best place to get your ammo, I know, super fast, super great pricing, all the common calibers, bulkammo.com. And remember, whenever the gun grabbers start to uh, – Start pulling their nonsense and talking about grabbing guns. Isn't it always interesting what disappears first? It is not never the guns that start really drying up really quick. It's magazines and ammunition. And it's because they are integral. They are integral to actually having a gun matter. If we had all the guns you wanted and no ammo, well, there'd be no bang bangs and no pew-pews. All right. So with that, let's 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 start digging into this. I want to tell you, I am going to go kind of fast because I have a ton of ground to cover today. Today's show is somehow to, but it's mostly what, why, and why you would want to, right? Like, it's to make you aware of all the possibilities that are out there. I will tell you, if you are not watching the video today, uh, you're listening on audio, which is like a 100 to 1. It's like a 100 audio downloads for one video view, at least I get that. And there was probably maybe for every hundred audio listens, there's probably five people out of that hundred that actually go look at the show notes. Right. Um, today, you might want to because I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff and I have a great big laundry list of all the stuff with links to it at the bottom. You can get it, of course, through my website, going through t and getting it on Amazon and what have you. And that is one reason I do it. I don't hate money. Uh, and if you're going to shop online, you know, shopping through my site is a great thing that you can do to help support me. However, I mainly put all of those there so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. If you can source it locally, get it somewhere else for less. I'm always say go ahead and do that. It's just for informational purposes. But I have all that and a ton of like, I think my notes would be pretty valuable for you guys today as well. If you're actually going to try to build this. And I'll also say that since we're not going to get into here's exactly how you build this type of system. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and type in hydroponics, I have episodes that do that if you want more assistance there. All right, so let's start off with why hydroponics for this? Why not soil-based systems, right, which is what everybody's enamored with? And why not aquaponics? So I'll just say for rapid growing indoors, hydroponics is going to work better for you than growing soil. It just for the type of crops we're going to talk about today. I have nothing against putting soil in pots and growing in containers indoors. That's fine. Aquaponics. I love aquaponics. Most of what I do has is aquaculture out on my property with aquaponics elements integrated into it, like flow-through wicking beds, like ebb and flow beds. I love it. I love it. I love it. If all you want to do is grow enough greens for some salads through your winter, and that's what we're coming at this today from. And especially if your your plan is, well, at the end of winter, maybe I'm either going to just put everything away or I'm going to grow my starts or some of my plants to start out in the garden. I'm going to use my hydro system to start those and then I'm going to move them out into the garden. Uh Or I'm going to move my hydro system outdoors once I get to good outdoor growing temperatures. If any of those things are true, aquaponics really, you know, you got fish to move, Right. OK, so I don't think it's the great fit for indoor winter growing for salad. It really isn't. If you have fish tanks, which I do, and it is easy to integrate, you might find that it's not as easy as you think. But if you want to do it, go ahead. But this is my big reason, especially if you're new to this, if you've never done this before. If you do aquaponics, you have a much higher probability of getting some sludge and gunk and stuff like that and creating an overflow of that. Once you have some experience with avoiding this in an outdoor situation, where that overflow event could be bad for your sump dropping or whatever, but if you have a, if you have a uh, float valve there so that your fish don't die, you'll be okay. And you've kind of worked it out. It, it's a little safer to do, but I think you have a much better chance of coming home to a flooded flooded floor and 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 a dried out fish tank with aquaponics than you do with hydro because of that. Um, it is far more complex. And that's good from a biodiversity standpoint, but there's a lot more that can go wrong. If I have a hydro system and I notice that my plants are a little bit nutrient deficient, I can just add some more nutrient. That's it. That's all I got to do is just add some more nutrient. With fish, I got to add more fish. I got to feed differently. I got to figure out what's going on. And I just think if you're going to learn a new skill, learn a new skill first. Now, I did start with aqua. I think it's made me a better hydroponics grower as well. But I think for the person again that wants to do what we're talking about today is really a good idea just to start with this, and you're just it's just going to be incredibly efficient. It, it kind of blows you away the first time you do it. You add some nutrient, you set up your hydro up, your little plant gets you a know, little tiny plant about 11 to 10 days, and like day 12 to day 24 is insane the growth that you get, the root systems, everything, and what you can do with these greens with cut and come again, you can get so much yield off such a small uh, footprint with hydro more than anything else. Now, why indoors, right? Why don't why, why, why we go outdoors? Well, it's winter. It's cold. Everything freezes and dies, and I don't want to go out there because it's too cold. Imagine my little hydro system. Maybe I've got of this diversity of plants, but I also have like one or two parsley plants in the system, and now I'm making something really great for winter, like stew. It's cold out there. I don't want to go get the fresh parsley. I guess I'll use the dry parsley. No, no, no just rip some of the fresh parsley straight into the stew and not even the whole stew pot just the individual bowl right fresh herbs are always better that way so it it just has this advantage in that we can we can grow through the cold part of the year well so the plants don't die so that we're extremely comfortable and while a lot of things can be done outdoors in the cold what cold really does to plants is slows down their growth rate up to a point they get to warmth Growth rate speeds up, and then if you get too hot, it starts to slow down again. There's a sweet zone. We can hit that sweet zone all the time, every time. Um, It's easy to tend, even in bad weather. Ice, sleet, snow, rain, all that, wind, none of it matters. Um, You can measure your access to the fresh food that you're growing for yourself in your winter in steps. As in, how many steps is it from your kitchen to where your system is? That's how far away it is. It's steps, feet and inches, almost zero pest or disease concerns. I've heard from people that say they have had disease issues with hydroponic growing systems indoors. I've never seen it. I've never had any disease pressure on an indoor hydro system ever. And I mean, ever. Um, And I've I've never really had any pest issues either. I've had some like uh, fungus gnat action and stuff like that, but nothing that actually ever ate the plants. And part of that might be since I'm doing it in winter, you know, unless the pest gets indoors before I start it, there's not a lot of pest activity outdoors that time of year either. Uh, but very little pest or disease control. And you can build it inside and then take it back outside when the weather's right. I know we just got a weird focus issue there. Um, and hopefully it will clean itself up here in just a second. I'll try something here real quick on that. Okay, you just have to deal with blurry jack until the camera figures itself out. For those who want to know, the uh, the background image I usually have up, well, it fell, and I couldn't find the tack, and I had to start, so that's why that's that way, and uh, Nicole Sauce advised me to get a certain piece of software that I did for the webcam, and while it did solve that focus issue, I didn't like the way that the image looked at all after that, so I had to play with it more, so we'll just have to deal with that going forward. If you're on audio only, none of that matters to you, right? So... Um, But, yeah, you can build it inside and and take it outside later. I think that's incredibly valuable because the system now can be used in multiple ways, um, including, like, just taking it out to a garage and using it to do your starts for your plants that you're going to put out in spring would be one example of that. Or you just put it away, right? That's the other thing is you can just – I'm going to do this, like, let's say three months or four months a year, and then I'm going to put it away. And if you're using, you know, we're going to talk about different containers to grow in. But but stuff like, you know, sterilites or, or Rubbermaid tubs or whatever to grow in, even if the holes have had, the tops have had holes put into them. You can still take most of your stuff and put it inside your bins, snap the lid on, put it away in a closet or a pantry or garage, and break it out every year and quickly set it up because there's not that much to do. All right. Next up... Um, the three systems that I recommend you consider for this, and they're pretty basic. There's what's known as Kratky. And Kratky is where we're going to solve the oxygen issue by doing nothing except allowing evaporation to occur. And so a deeper system is usually better for, high, for Kratky hydroponics. But when we grow with hydroponics, we're adding nutrient to water. And hydroponics literally means water working Right. Hydro is water. ponics is to work. So water working. And so the only issue we have is if our roots are 100 percent in water and we don't have like some sort of aquatic plant that's adapted to having its roots always completely in water. It's going to lack oxygen. It's going to become anaerobic. The roots are going to start to discolor at first and then begin to rot and our plants are not going to be healthy and they're going to die. So we need oxygen. And so there's multiple ways to make sure oxygen gets to the root zone. With cracky, we just simply let evaporation happen. And as the evaporation happens, the, the longer part of the root is in the water. And it stays nice and healthy because all it's doing is taking water and nutrient. And the exposed part of the root in the air gap gets all the oxygen it could ever need because it's, it's literally sitting in a moist, oxygenated environment. There's a lid. There's a prevention of complete evaporation. But we have that gap. The issue with that is if it evaporates too much, it takes like an hour of your plant having no water at all for it to just like, I've had it happen in a system before you go upstairs, everything's just dead. There's no battery. There's no reserve. Once the water's gone, the water's gone. Where if you don't water for a while in soil, well, until that soil is completely dried out, the plant still has access to some moisture, right? So you have to be really careful with that. So then if you have a longer grow, you have to put fluid back into your container, and uh, no, it is not. I'll mark that one for later, but I'll probably answer it for you. Uh, somebody's asking if is the same as DWC, which is deep water culture. No. Deep water culture involves moving the water in some way for oxygen. We'll get to that here in just a second. Um, but let's just leave it there because I'm going to go back to advantages and disadvantages anyway. Next up is pump-driven. Pump-driven is exactly what it sounds like. We have our grow tubs, and somewhere in the system, we have a sump. And all a sump is is the lowest point that we hold water in our system, some sort of reserve reservoir tank. We put a submersible pump in there, and we move water up through the system, and gravity brings it back down to our sump. There's other ways to do it, but that's the most common. It's probably the only thing you would do in a system this small indoors. So that's pump-driven as in a pump that sits in the water and moves water. We're generally going to put that on a timer. There's no need for that pump to run nonstop, 24-7. It's a waste of energy. There's plenty of oxygen that can be gotten in there. And then we have what are called air pump-enabled systems. I don't know if that's the technical term. It's what I call them. And that's where we take something like this right here, which is a standard aquarium air pump. If you are an aquarist, so you keep fish, or you are into hydroponics or in aquaponics or anything like that, and you want the best Consumer grade pumps you can buy Aheem, right there's the name E H E I M. These are made in Germany. This is an Aheme 200. Uh, most of my systems actually that have Ahemes in them run on Aheem 400s. That's just an indicator of how much oxygen they can or error they can move per hour. Um, these all come with a dual output and they have individual controls. So one of these pumps, including a 200, could run two reservoirs for you where in most cases you would need to have something, well, you we'll get into that. You're going to need to have some sort of a manifold with individual controls on them, and even that pump, if you wanted that pump to run like four tanks, and it probably could, you would need the same thing. So that's air pump driven. So all that means is we're pumping air into the water, and by pumping air into the water, we're keeping enough oxygen in there. I will also tell you that those things are really low draw. The easy button is just turn them on, leave them on, let them run continuous, that's fine. But you could certainly put one of those pumps on, like, 15 on, 45 off with a mechanical timer. And it would be plenty of oxygen for your plants. They're not going to go. And you could watch them, and if they start to dis- the discolor a little bit or something like that, you know, tick down another uh, button on your timer and go to 30 minutes every hour or whatever. 15 minutes every 30 minutes would be the same effect except more often. One thing you need to know about air pumps that's really important, uh, if you don't have a backflow preventer in them, and I prefer not to do that because I know that it – I don't care what anybody says about their backflow valves. It reduces the capacity of, of air into the system. They run less air in. There's back pressure on the pump. You get less performance. All I do is I always locate my pump higher than my stone's. So somewhere above, and then these come down in. And what that does is when this pump kicks off, because it's on a timer or because you have a power outage, you don't get water flowing back in and through your pump and creating a siphon and making a giant mess. So make sure if you're using an air pump-driven system, you are aware of that. So, again, cracky, pump-driven and air pump-driven. Cracky advantages. Cracky again, we just have a container. We have a lid on top of said container we have some way to put the plants into the top of second header. We usually just drill a hole in it. We set the net cup or whatever we're using in there with our media and our seed and our plant starts to grow and our roots grow down into our system. And as water evaporates, the air gap provides the oxygen the plant needs. It works really, really, really good. There's nothing to break. There's no energy inputs, except since we're growing indoors, you're probably going to use artificial lighting. So you put lights on a timer. There's no other mechanical devices. There's no other energy draw. That means there's nothing to break or fail. Um, it works really good. It was developed by a doctor Kratke out of the uh, University of Hawaii or University of Honolulu, one or the other. I don't remember now. And he developed it specifically for outdoor and greenhouse use in places with no electricity. So that they could do hydro in the tropics in the third world and what have you. And it kind of like was like, if this works, then this will give access to this technology to people that right now don't think they have access to it. But then it worked so good, it became its own thing. Okay. Um, It also can have a float valve controlled reservoir, which is really nice, because what you need to do with Kratky is, is that water evaporates and the level goes down. You need to pick a level that it can't go past. And it's okay if it goes past that level a little bit and then comes back up. But it, but you don't ever want to fill it all the way back up because what will happen is all these hair roots that form. If you When you look at a crack key grown plant, you'll see very conventional looking hydroponic roots deep down in the water. And above it, you'll see this really fine mesh net of roots. It's a total different root form. And you if you take and you cover those roots back up, they'll die. They've, they've, they've developed in a different they've developed in that air gapped environment. So if a little water gets on them, maybe it comes up, let's say that you go down four inches and you want to maintain a three inch gap and you go back up the three so one inch up, they'll be fine. But if you completely bury them, you'll send a cascade failure into your system. So that's one of the problems. So by having a float valve and another reservoir, all you have to do is keep adding hydroponic fluid to your reservoir and it'll equalize now. People are going to say, well, how often do you have to change your fluid and everything? We're going very simplified today. Most of these systems that we're talking about today, small-scale indoor systems with duration of use of three to four months, you probably never have to change your fluid at all. You probably never have to change your fluid at all. You just keep adding properly mixed fluid and you'll be fine. Toward the end of it, you may be getting to where you've kind of worn that out, but... For today, we're going to leave that as a more advanced technique that you don't really need to worry about right now. Um, It requires a higher, as far as disadvantages, it requires a higher capacity reservoir. You want some depth. A lot of people use ball jars, which are great, but then you're giving up vertical space. And we'll talk more about that in a bit where you've got lights overhead. You can only fit so much on a shelf of a rack growing system or something like that. Um, it will require topping up for longer grows, which don't matter for what we're talking about today. But if you were doing cracking, you're doing peppers, tomatoes, whatever, where you have like a six, seven, eight month crop, you're definitely going to require top ups. You're never going to be able to just let it, like if you go deep enough with lettuce and stuff like that, you can just let it evaporate. And when you get down to where you have kind of wore out, your cut and come again with your lettuce and your leaf crops, you just start a new one. You just dump that on a tree somewhere or something like that as a, fertilizer boost and 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 set up another one. If you're doing something that, that's going to be a long growth crop, you're going to have to either have a float valve or top ups. Um, and you can end up with a significant amount of waste fluid that can be a little bit of a pain in the butt to move and get out, right? Because you don't have a pump where we can just drain the system and pump the fluid out. That's one of the nice things about a pump. Um, as far as, air pump driven systems one of the great things about using an air pump like that aheem i showed you earlier they really supercharge your growth when you put an air stone and i want to show you right now if i've got yeah these air stones when you put an air stone into your grow vessel you will notice that some of your plants really exceed the growth of other plants in the same tub same species same amount of light same temperature, same fluid. What you're always gonna find is it'll be the ones with their roots like directly over the air stones. That will always be where like you so moving your airstone once around in a, a while in, in the tank is not a bad idea. That said, I I don't like to use um these small airstones. Let get this up here. This is typically what we use in the aquarium pet trade and like uh, air like air pump driven filters. Uh, sponge filters and things like that, these little bitty ones. I like to use, in a hydro system, these long, they're 12-inch long. They spread that air column out, and if you have a large tub, it is not overkill to put two of those in a single tub. And so the beauty of them is they use an off-the-shelf aquarium pump that you can buy at PetSmart or Petco or Amazon or what have you. And I have links, again, to all this stuff in today's show notes. Um, They're less prone to leaks and stuff like that because – we're not moving water; we're only moving air, and because we're only moving air, um, we're in a really great position from a from a fluid safety standpoint, not having overflows, clogs, etc. So as long as we keep the air pump higher than the than the stones in the system, we're never going to get a backflow siphon running, where we start to siphon the water out. And we so because we're pushing air into the system versus moving water around, we don't need bulkheads, we don't need uniseals, we don't need a lot of plumbing. Basically we have cracky with an air pump so that we can just keep it topped up. And we can do that with a float valve, we can do that manually, but we don't have to worry that we've overfilled unless we actually overfill when we're replacing fluid. That that's a huge advantage. Um They're generally less expensive to build because while the pump is a price, you have to buy it. There's a cost to it. For every water pump, there's a cost. Plus, then you have pipes. Then you have bulkheads or unisills. Then you have fittings. And anybody that's built anything with PVC, and when when you talk big, big PVC, this is not true. I guess it's not as true anymore with half inch and one inch and stuff. But basically, pipe is cheap. PVC pipe is cheap. Elbow fittings, tees, that's where all the valves, all that's where the money is. So we eliminate that. Now, the other side of it is, if we have a water pump, we can take one water pump and run dozens of beds. But a small scale indoor system, one or two air pumps is probably all that you need. And they're always, if you do stuff with aquaponics and fish and stuff like that, it's good to have some extra of those run, laying around anyway throughout the rest of the year. Um, it doesn't require a reservoir we can just manually top them up. So if we're using a pump driven system, we're gonna have to have a sump somewhere for that water to return to. So we we need that extra component where if we're doing air pump driven systems and we're doing a rack system, the bottom of the rack, the one that's on the floor basically can still be another grow space. Where with a pump driven system, we have to have enough elevation to allow the water to return to the sump. And in an indoor system, we're not going below grade, So we're going to have to have a certain amount of shelf height just for our first tier of growth. And as I've built a lot of systems, I can tell you it's always more than you think to have the reservoir that you need in depth to handle the up and down flow. Because when you're doing a pump driven system in in aquaponics, um, the issue that you come come up against um, is that. Your, your reservoir, let's say I had a 20-gallon reservoir. That sounds like a lot, but if it's really shallow, like it's a shallow 20-gallon tub, like a concrete mixing, mixing tub, it takes very little water out of there before my pump starts sucking air. But if it was 20 gallons in a cylinder, like a small trash can, well, that's got a lot of bat water battery. Can, like it's now It's cycling on, the level drops, and then when it turns off, the level comes back up. And as water gets used, it slowly moves down. So I need depth in my sump and somewhere in the neighborhood of two feet. So that puts my first tier in a pump driven system at at least two foot six at the bottom to get a good, reliable return. So if I'm doing air pump driven, all of that goes away. That's why I don't really recommend it for indoor systems unless you know why you're doing what you're doing. I'm going to show you a listener doing it toward the end of the day that knows exactly why he's doing what he's doing. And this is the uh, SOMO says, which is better. I'm explaining all of them because it depends on what you want to do and how much work you want to put in and how much you want to invest. Personally, I think the the the, the one you can't lose with is for indoor small scale system. Just to grow salad is air pump driven because you can still do cracky, but you have a fail safe. Right. So I believe in doing my systems with cracky elements. So I like to always start my systems when I'm starting my seeds with the water way up so it's on the media, so it's wet, so the damn seed will germinate. But then I like to let an air gap form, even if I'm doing recirculating or whatever. I love having an air gap in there. So air pumps eliminate all the problems I just gave you, and uh, they just tend to work better. Uh, Let me see. Now, what are the advantages of a pump-driven system? Because there are some, like I said, which is better. It depends. Number one, whatever you set your overflow level with, every time that pump kicks on, it brings the level back up there. So as long as I keep my sump with enough fluid in it, I don't have to worry about the levels in my other tanks. That's that is an advantage, right? Like every advantage has a corresponding disadvantage, really. Um, It can and likely should use cracky elements. Like I said, if I set my overflow what I, what I'll tend to do is I'll set my overflow using like a half inch bulkhead, which is a penetrator that goes through your tank, screws on, and it keeps, allows water to flow through a pipe, but not around the edges. So it keeps water in there unless you want to let it out. And then you'll set a stand up pipe to set your height. So a little piece of half inch pipe. If, if it's a four inch, you might set a three and a half inch pipe, leave a half inch of uh, overflow, uh, head. And, that will hold that water at three and a half inches. So even if like it's on a longer cycle and it goes an hour before it kicks on again and the water levels come down a little bit when the pump kicks on, it'll bring it back up there. So I'll never have to worry about that. I do have to worry about overdriving and overflowing it, but we already did that. So we won't go through that again. And, and that is, that is really hugely an advantage because I can stop worrying about that. Um, water can be pumped out. So if I want to do a water change and I have a pump, I can just redirect the outflow of that pump with a pipe to a bucket and pump water out of my reservoir to my reservoir is damn near empty. And all my tanks, I can go in there and start pulling over foot one at a time so you know how much it's going to fill your reservoir. I can pull those out and I can use the pump to completely change out or do like an 80% fluid change. So I don't think it's that big of a deal in the winter, but if you're going to get really sophisticated with it, that would be an advantage that you would have. Um, disadvantages. It requires additional energy. You have to run the mechanical pump. And they take more and en- it's not a lot of energy, but it takes definitely if you put a kilowatt meter on it. Um an air pump like this, once it gets through its initial startup, it's gonna draw like 25 watts of power, right? Where something like a 550 um submersible pump that I use is going to draw closer to like 80 so it's it's a 3x increase roughly in in energy usage um again it requires all of your grow media to be higher than the sump that's a disadvantage and when you start designing these things you'll start to realize like The higher I have to go, the less space I have that I can stack in because your vertical space gets into issues with indoor growing because you have lights. So if your lights are taking up two inches of your vertical space and you had eight inches, you just went to six. So the lower we can hold a reservoir, the better. And we can only go so low. Uh, So eliminating the reservoir just takes that all away. Now, let's kind of talk about two more things, though. One of the things that's an advantage is the... Pump-driven systems are highly automated. You put a timer in them, and they pretty much run themselves. You basically check on them to harvest and to make sure your sump doesn't get too low. That's it. But the other negative is so much more parts. You need, again, elbows, straight fittings, tees. All that stuff adds up the cost. So more complex, more points of failure, more money. You can see why for this I like aquarium pump-driven systems. Simple. Easy, and if you don't want to spend a lot of money on these ahims, uh, Tetra makes a pump called a Whisper pump. They're very quiet. You would probably need one per grow bed, but they're about ten bucks. So even four of them are going to run you at forty bucks, which is about the cost of one of the ahims. So it might be a really good way to go. I don't run any of those in any of my aquatic systems anymore, uh, but they're they're good for what what they are. And so you can grow in time. Yeah. All right, now, what are the functions of this system? Why would we do this? And and number one is fresh food on demand. Just as I said in the beginning, the fact that you can, in February, March, January, go into your closet upstairs, your spare room, your garage, wherever it is you're doing this, with a pair of scissors and a bowl, and come back and have a fresh green salad, and some herbs to put on your your main dish is huge. The fact that, you know, you, fresh chives, fresh green onions, fresh garlic scapes, whatever. Just on a, you know, it's, it's cold out. You make some soup. How about the classic 1980s kid get out of school winter lunch? We all know what it was, right? We all know what it was. What was it? Cream and tomato soup. So you take the Campbell's, the shitty Campbell's tomato soup. You make it with cream or milk instead of water. And you make a grilled cheese sandwich and you dip it in the soup, throw some fresh basil on that sucker. It's a whole new level, right? Or make really good tomato soup, right? With that fresh basil. It, 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 it's pretty amazing to be able to do that. And if we throw a little microgreen growing in with it, you know, we make a burger and we can throw like some microgreen radish and microgreen uh, black oil sunflower sprouts on it. An, another level altogether. Next is to start plants for your spring and fall gardens. I think this is incredibly useful. So you could be setting it up right now. And if you're in like a Southern climate like me, like you have plenty of time right now still, it's a little late, but you could start like cauliflower, broccoli and stuff like that in that move it outdoors and then start growing your, your winter veg. So that's another way. Definitely. If you do this, I'm going to tell you that you're going to do the math at the end of the season and you're going to start at least some of the plants for your garden, assuming you have a garden in this system, because it will make no sense for you not to once it's already set up, and ready to go. Tomatoes and peppers in particular do really well as transplants out of these systems. The only thing I'll tell you is to cut all but a few of the little ribs out of your net cups, like a pair of snips or something like that. So that when you pull the roots out of your plants to transplant them into soil, you're not ripping all the roots off. That's, that's about it. Uh, there. And again, it can be literally scaled to any size. So like, this is also a learning project. So let's say you're new to this. So you can go invest hundred bucks, 200 bucks. If you do what, what I teach, you're going to get way more than that. If you've ever priced organically grown greens, they're one of the most expensive things by the pound you can grow. It will pay for itself. And then you can decide, do you want to scale up and do, a broader scale version of hydro and or aquaponics. You'll develop the skill set. So those are the primary reasons that I'm bringing to you. What do I recommend growing? Now, Whatever the hell you want. Like I grow some really cool shit. Like I grow um, wasabi arugula, which is a variety of root arugula and it's like super pungent and it literally tastes like wasabi. That, that's an example. I grow a lot of like Asian greens and stuff like that. Uh, I grow, uh, can't think of it now. It's like a red, Mustard light green uh, consumer or something like that. I grow up just a ton of stuff but here's kind of like You could do worse than a really simple system with three or four or five grow beds again about this size So each one of these and we'll talk more about this toward the end six plants each easily can grow in something like this and Do something as follows uh, One to two varieties of leaf lettuce. I always do that. That's always kind of the core of my stuff and I always do like a red to purple colored lettuce and a green lettuce, because that gives contrast and color in a salad, and it just looks nicer. Uh, and additionally, I do a variety of romaine lettuce, and I never grow full size romaine in a hydro system. I let them get up, you know, to like baby romaine size. They're perfect, and that gives another texture mixed into a salad. Arugula is my favorite thing to grow in hydroponics. You, if you can't grow arugula, you're doing something really, really Really, 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 really wrong. I mean, you're just really doing something bad wrong if you can't grow arugula in hydroponics. It grows incredibly fast, um, generally ready for harvest 16 to 18 days. And you almost have to harvest it heavily into the, when you get into like mid twenties of days, or it will grow too fast and grow too much. It's, it's insane how well arugula does. And it gives a nice sharp bite to contrast with everything else in the salad. And I've also heard from people, they don't really like arugula because of that sharp, nutty bite. You know, try wilting arugula as a substitute for spinach and to things like, uh, if you're a pasta eater, I'm really not, but if you are, like wilted arugula in a pasta is great. As soon as we wilt it, a lot of that sharpness comes down. It's delicious in soups as well. So a lot of times with arugula, what I'll do is like steaming hot bowl of soup, i just throw a handful of leaves in at the end and mix that in gives that contrast a little bit of bite, but nowhere near as much spinach. Absolutely. One of the best hydroponics crops, especially indoors. You will find a lot of times spinach will not like to germinate well for you in a hydro system. I don't know if just the evaporation off the media, it's too cold or what. I also have had a lot of problems in my climate anyway, with spinach germinating, no matter when I plant it. So I came up with a solution this will work on any seed that's not germinating well for you, including if like a couple like last year, I got a batch of uh, Cuban L peppers seeds from Baker Creek. They did not germinate at not Baker Creek. It was. um. Oh, I can't think of them now. They're actually an MSB supporter uh, MV seed. It's not MV seed because we don't have them. It's the other people that we have. Anyway, I got a, a package of Cuban L's and they did not germinate with a crap. And I did this, and I got 100% germination rate. You take two or three layers of paper towel, fold them up to where they'll fit inside like a quart Ziploc bag, wet it, squeeze it out so it's damp, not soaking wet, lay your seeds on it, fold the towel over, put it in the Ziploc bag, zip the bag up, and put it somewhere warm. doesn't need light because all you're looking for is a little root nodule to stick out. My favorite place to put it is on top of our cable box for our TV because it's warm there. And it's also sitting by there. So I'm going to walk by and see it so I don't forget about it. Start checking it a day, two, three days in. As soon as you see the little root nodules starting to come out of the seed, prop it into your system. If you wait too long, it'll grow. It'll break off the roots. It'll start trying to sprout. It'll, it'll get deformed. But if you have any problems, the spinach is the one I've had problems with. Basil, easy. And one of the best rewards that you can have for doing this is fresh basil, to me anyway. Uh, you can grow different. Swiss chard. Uh, Is another great crop, and I like to grow multiple varieties of Swiss chard in a system like this, like a a red and a yellow or something like that, or a red and a, a standard like a green. There's one thing you need to know about Swiss chard. Swiss chard is basically a member of the beet family. And while it doesn't get a great big round beet like a red beet or a golden beet, it gets a pretty big root eventually. And so in a hydro system, you really want to keep your eye on the root mass of your chard, and when it gets to a certain size, this is the hack. If you pop it out of that net cup and put it into a soil system, it'll start growing, and you can keep growing it, and it can actually become like a crop to put into your garden in your spring. If you don't, it will eventually, you'll be unable to get it out of the net cup, and it will rupture it. It will get huge, absolutely huge. I will also warn you, because it's happened to me before, sometimes because the seeds look so similar and they're cultivated in similar places, you might get a beet seed in your chard. And if you grow red beets in a hydro system, they do really well. And when you try to pop them out of the uh, net cup, you're going to get a bath of beet juice. Just be aware of that if you happen to end up growing beets or or that happens to you. Uh, Next up, chives or green onion. So that's a great little assortment there and easy to do, like I said, in like four to six uh, small grow tubs. We'll, we'll grow all of that for you, you know, like three or four plants of each at different stages of growth. So as some get too mature and they need to be rebooted, you can just do new starts and, and use the other ones. And so let me go through that again. One or two varieties of leaf lettuce, a variety of romaine lettuce, arugula, spinach, basil, Swiss chard, chives, and or green onion. Another really great thing to grow. And you can do this with just by gr- drilling little extra holes. In your lids, about, you know, uh, three-eighths uh, diameter or a half-inch diameter, depending on the size of your stocks. Um, uh watercress. A lot of times you go to the grocery store, they'll sell a living plug of watercress in a bag. It never looks very good. It doesn't last very long. But if you bring that home and make cuttings of it and stick it into your hydro system, it's like a bonus crop. So now we've got watercress mixed in there which gives us that kind of assertion bite to go with the arugula bite and the contrast of the sweetness of the lettuce. Like what a great way to do things. What a great way to do things. Now let's continue moving on here. Let's talk now um, about fertilizers. So this is where everybody gets their pants in a wad. I have been playing with some hydro systems and I'll be releasing more information later on this where I'm not using any synthetic fertilizer at all. I'm using a blend of compost tea and worm bin leachate, and I'm getting really good results. It's an advanced tactic, and you're doing it because you want to be purely organic, or you want to be independent, or you want to show off. The amount of fertilizer that these systems use to build something that grows indoors, I behoove you, start with the easy button. Start with the easy button. Start with the frickin easy button and the easy button is going to be a synthetic fertilizer like master blend and this is that's the number one one that I recommended for the longest period of time And I'm going to tell you why I have a different recommendation after doing this now for about six years I've been doing hydro I've been doing aquaponics for like 10 and after six years of doing hydro and 10 years of doing both If I was going to go into large-scale hydroponic production and rely on a fertilizer that I can buy off the shelf, Master Blend would be what I would use. And if I was going any, like, even like, let's say, like a 50-foot by 20-foot grow tunnel, something that size, like something you could make a reasonable living off of, I would have everything automated down to the injection of the mixed um, fertilizer where you have... Basically, a system that's fully automated running on things like Adrenos and it's saying, oh, we need a little bit more of this. We that's what I would do in that situation. I would be in that situation. I'd be worried about my pH and adjusting my pH. Everything I would be worried about, right, because I'd be doing more than just these greens, doing just these greens in an indoor system. Unless there's something really wrong with your water or something, you cannot test pH. I've never tested pH in a system like this. I haven't even bothered. I know my water's alkaline because it is because I live on limestone and I'm not, and it would be better if it was slightly acidic. I'm not worried about if I'm doing fruiting plants like peppers and tomatoes and all, I'm going to get all into that simple greens, boom. And this, right? However, as, as much as I like this stuff, there's a few things you need to know about it. Number one, it is hydroscopic. It takes up water and it turns into either a clump or into an oozy yellow mess depending on which one of the components it's a three component system. And so as soon as I if I use this stuff now, as soon as I get it, I put it into a um, a ball jar and I seal it tightly and I keep it indoors temperature controlled in my pantry. Because even in the ball jar out of my shop it turned into a brick. If you leave an open bag of the primary nutrient, the 41838 stuff, it will turn into a yellow oozy goop. So it has to be sealed. Otherwise, it's great. The other thing about it, though, the other thing about it is that some of the components don't like to mix well for you. And there's all different ways people say to pre-mix it. Whenever I use it, I'm using it in a larger system with a pump that's constantly agitating the water. Sooner or later, it takes care of itself indoor systems i highly recommend and this is what i would use especially getting started out of the gate for an indoor system general hydroponics flora grow now what you're seeing on the screen if you're watching the video is a three component uh uh, uh it's a it's a system that uses three different components flora grow flora micro and flora bloom they're exactly what the grow is your primary growing fertilizer Micro brings in some some micronutrient, and the bloom is what you're going to give to a plant at bloom time when it's supposed to fruit. So we're not talking about growing peppers and tomatoes and anything like that here today. So we're not doing any fruiting plants. So we can just not worry about that. The micro is useful but unnecessary. Honestly, for a system like this, Flora Grow will do everything that you need. You will grow fantastic good tasting salads lettuces and greens it's all and and the manufacturer says the same that that's all you really need if we're not growing large even mature we get into mature green plants right then we're going to want to add some micro if you want to add some of the flora micro this is what i would personally do to keep your costs as low as possible flora grow use one tablespoon per gallon don't worry about ec meters don't worry about uh ph just put a A tablespoon to the gallon of water, a gallon of flora grow costs you about 30 bucks. There's 256 tablespoons to a gallon. Okay, so you're you're never going to use up a gallon. You're never going to use up a gallon. You're never going to use up a gallon in a single season doing something of the scale we're talking about today. If you want the micro, use a quarter teaspoon, I'm sorry, a quarter of a tablespoon to the gallon. So a tablespoon of the grow a quarter tablespoon of the micro and go on with your life. And that'll add some additional micronutrients and all. But I'll say this, if you are relying on salad greens for your nutrients, you need to eat meat because you're not, I don't care what you eat. You're never going to get all your micronutrients and all everything from salad greens. Eat eat a steak. Don't worry about your nutrients. Red meat will give you all the nutrient you ever need. Beef is a superfood. This is salad. So I'm not worried about trying to make the most nutrient dense lettuce and basil in a system that's designed to keep me in salad for a few months of the year through my winter so that I'm eating really great stuff. And, and Billy, Billy is saying, um, can't do it wrong from, uh, food forest farms. He said, that's not, that's food forest farms. Okay. So that's not Billy. That's, uh, that's Brian. He says, can't do it wrong. Big buds with the bloom. Yeah. And he's talking about the, the sacred herb. I think. And, and I'll tell you what we in, The hydroponics space owe a tremendous debt to the cannabis growers of the world, whether we partake in cannabis or not, because the light, the the lights that we can buy today for how cheap we can get them and all of the nutrient mixes, all of the systems, everything that's out there. It was a high dollar crop like cannabis that enabled the scale of production to make this cheap for everybody, because you can buy incredible lights now for five to ten dollars a light maybe $20 a light for some of the really good consumer level stuff, right? You can certainly spend more, but it's, I I would go straight to the general hydroponics product for your indoor systems, starting out of the gate for your lights. It's hard to beat Barina B A R I N N A. Uh, I still have the kind of pinkish looking ones on my website. Uh, They now offer a tremendous number of different lights sizes and they do straight white light that's still full spectrum if i buy any lights going forward i'm buying the white ones because they are less they make your eyes less batty and they attract less attention when they glow out a window and and i'll leave that to you because there's certain people that think it's their business to be in everybody else's business and uh they really don't need to be but they are so you do with that as you will for growing media what do i put my seed in there's people use rock wall there's people use foam there's all oh, there's like people use perlite rapid rooter grow plugs by general hydroponics to me they end up costing you know brand new first use about 50 cents a piece to me that's not too expensive but here's the thing i've got some i've used five or six times whenever i'm done with one i cut the top off pull the roots off of it and I throw it up on top of one of my ebb and flow beds. And over a while, the worms come up and eat it. If you have a worm bed, you can only sit it on top of your worm bed. They'll clean it out for you. You can just let them dry out. Give them a bath in about one quarter um, of uh, hydrogen peroxide, just regular strength hydrogen peroxide, 75% water. Give them a bath in that. That'll knock down any algae or anything that's kind of taken up uh, at, and let them, let them like halfway dry out. And you start using them again absolutely fantastic very 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 simple and very effective let me show you if you're watching the video these are tomato plants that were grown in a crack key style system uh, they were grown to be put out in the garden I did what I normally do which is I set them in this it, it ready to go about five to six weeks before transplant this is at like 25 days. I had to plant new ones. They they got so far out ahead growing in those grow plugs in a crack key-based system that that's what they look like. That's a tomato plant in 24 days. And for those that can't see it, the roots are like from my armpit down to my waist, the length of the roots. And the stalks on the tomato plants, the main stalks are about as big around as my little finger in 24 days. So when I've had and used different uh media. I have never had the consistency and the, the easiness of the uh the, the, the general hydroponics grow plugs that I have from other things. Now indoors I also kind of recommend this might surprise you but I recommend that you consider using uh an indoor greenhouse. This is also a reason I think that my systems have done so well. And I have a greenhouse that I've recommended. And it has its issues, but it's super cheap um, that I've recommended for years. And a lot of people have used it and had really great results with it. And it's not really made by any specific manufacturer. These things are made by dozens of companies out of Hong Kong, I'm sure. And it's a little four-tier shelf with a little greenhouse plastic with a zipper that goes over it. It's a half a beer job to put it together, no tools required. You can hang your lights and you can set it up. It's one real issue that it has though. And these are like 35 bucks is that the distance from one shelf to the next, when you start adding grow lights and now we need the depth of a reservoir, it's pretty tight. And what I've done up till now in my system like this, I use the big throwaway aluminum pans. Like you put a Turkey in when you do it for Thanksgiving. So you just throw it away. And then I cut out foam board To sit on top of it and that gives me a lot of uh, moisture or a lot of reservoir with a very flat profile these would work pretty good too Um, this is actually from Albertsons it's their signature variety I'm pretty sure Tupperware or Sterilite makes it for them and let me bring this back up they're only about four inches deep and the distance between those shelves are 13 inches but you still have the, the the light that you're hanging so you have to think about that, and there's there's ways around it. Like you could put the lights on the top shelf, and only grow on two shelves would be one way that you could do that. But I just found something from the same people that make that greenhouse that if you have room for it, you might really consider because you could grow more food than you could ever use. You could do your starts with it. It's a small walk-in greenhouse. It's 56 by 56 square, uh, by about six foot three high, 76 inches high. They're 60 bucks. They go together the same way. And we've got a picture here that gives us dimensions. And you can see that the distance between the shelving is 22.4 inches. So one of the best reservoirs for small-scale hydro, in my opinion, are the four-gallon, I think Sterilite makes them, the black and yellow ones, Home Depot and Lowe's are stuffed with them this time of year and will be as everybody gets organized after Christmas for New Year's and uh, winter cleaning and all that stuff. So you'd have plenty of space between your light and your grow for greens and, you know, do what you, do what you want with it. One thing I'll say about these, they have all these really nice pictures of them outside and stuff. And then the people that make this right in in the description say it's not for outdoor use, right? These are not for outdoor use. This is a low uh, quality greenhouse plastic. If you grow outdoors in high UV, this plastic will break down in a single season And the plastic joints that hold the metal together will probably break down from UV in two seasons, which you'll never see because they'll break down. And there's many different styles of these greenhouses. But I think if you have the space in a warm garage, a heated basement, even just a temperature-stable basement, these make a lot of sense. Something like a small ceramic heater sitting in the bottom of one. I wanted to show you some of the pictures of, of people using this. So let me pull that up while I'm talking, but I thought maybe it'd be good for you guys to see some of the ways that they're being used by people. And that person there is using theirs under a covered porch. I would be totally comfortable with that. That would work really well. Um, Indoor use though would be best. There's a lady standing with that one that gives you some scale with it. So this is not huge. It's not marketed as huge. And you'll see that's the smaller one that, uh, that I use. So, uh, let's get off that so we don't overly burden the people that are audio only. But I want you to know that the lights, the pumps, everything that I've showed you today is in the show notes for today's episode. If you look down in the, the video notes below, there's a link there that will take you over to the audio version of the show about an hour after the live stream's done. And everything that I've showed you today, there's links to it where you can find it if you want to know more about it. All right. Now. Let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about some containers and then wrap up and do some questions. I have a few marked. If you have a question for me, if you have a question for me, put the word question in all caps and then follow with question like this. And if you do that, I'll know it's a question. I'll be more likely to get it marked. So if you have any questions for me, that's what it should look like when you put it in the comments section. So do that for me if you have a question as we get toward wrapping up here. All right. So now. Um, when we look at containers, the kind of go to most commonly showed off on social media container for cracky is a ball jar. It's cool. And I think it's a two inch net cup it's either a two-inch or a three-inch net cup, and a small-mouth ball jar fits in there perfectly. And I think there's one that fits perfectly in a wide-mouth jar as well. And so it's kind of a natural fit. A lot of times people will wrap them with foil or something to keep light out, which you can do, but then you can't see how much you know is left in there. The thing about a ball jar is it's relatively tall, so we're back to the clearance over the light issue. A lot of people do this like on a windowsill. But do you have a low E enough window and you have enough sun and stuff will grow in your windowsill with hydro, by all means do it. For most of you, you're going to find you're not going to get that great of results. I'm not a huge fan of jars and jugs and things like that because of the height. And then each is individually contained. It's pretty much a key only thing at that point, right? Rubbermaid tubs, I think are one of the go-tos. They're cheap. They're affordable. They're easy to drill holes in the lid. Uh, they're easy to modify. They come in a huge variety of sizes and shapes, and they're affordable. And it's what I mostly use are things like that. And then you have another option. And I think as you look at larger systems, it becomes more and more appealing to do this because you get complete control. And that's to use wood to build your reservoir, take some inexpensive pond liner, and line it. I've even seen it done with, like, vapor barriers. And you might think, well, that's kind of risky because uh, one little hole in it and it's going to leak and all. So I've seen people take the thick vapor barrier and like a 50 foot roll that's like 10 foot wide of that shit is super cheap. So you can make a lot with them. And I've seen people simply take and put two layers of it in a system. And that way, if there's a pinhole in one at some point, you know, and I've even seen the one dude that I, I saw doing this on YouTube years ago. And when he did get a leak, he just drained it. Right? Drained it out, put a, didn't take anything I just added another layer because why not? Because now you had cushion. So it's something that you might want to consider. But for indoor stuff, I don't see any point to rubber or plastic line custom design stuff. Except again, you could get into some situations where maybe you could design some grow trays that are more accommodating for your overhead height. But now we're back to making penetrations because we're going to have to have some way to maintain that. So rubber made tubs. Sterilite tubs, again, I think this is about, again, these are two and a half gallon uh, Sterilite tubs. Now, Rubbermaid does make one. The lid is slightly different. I have a link to it on Amazon so you can see it. The one I just showed you, they're available at Amazon. That low height and relatively large volume seems to be about one of the best things for your smaller shelf-based systems. I I just want to re. Reemphasize though, this is something anybody can do. There is nobody out there listening to me right now that can't do this. No one needs to go out of their way and kill themselves trying to make this overly complex. No one needs to invest in a bunch of expensive equipment. If after you get your feet wet, you want to do some things like uh, start Worrying about adjusting pH and trying to optimize and getting yourself an EC meter and, and, and going to another level with it, God bless you. Go do it, go forth. But this is a great starting point. Like, there's nothing, there's no tool, toolbox fallacy that you can come up with. About the only thing you might need to buy, other than the components themselves, is a hole saw. Because cutting through material like this using like a razor knife or something just isn't worth it when you can buy a cheap hole saw kit for 15 bucks and you probably should have a hole saw kit anyway. And you don't need a great hole saw kit to drill holes in Rubbermaid containers. One piece of advice, I'll throw it here before we do some Q and A. When you're drilling a hole saw through something like thin Rubbermaid or the top of a like a Rubbermaid tub or something like, especially the ones with a uh, like the grid pattern in them where it can throw the teeth off and break chunks out, run it backwards. It'll take longer, but it'll make a cleaner cut for you running it backwards. Uh, than running it forwards. I've also kind of run it forward at like half speed until I get a good groove in it and then flip the drill and then run it and and do actually your drill through backwards. And you'll just get a cleaner edge to your net cup hole. And then remember, you want to go a little smaller than your net cup size so that it'll actually hold the net cup in place uh, or what have you. But anybody can do it. You can set up a basic system for well under a hundred bucks. You can set up a pretty advanced system, like even with that, like little walk-in greenhouse, is sixty dollars. So you could easily set up a pretty nice system for a couple hundred bucks, air pumps or or, or mechanical pumps, everything. And there is, I, I can't see a way that over four months you can't produce a couple hundred dollars worth of uh, uh, garden greens in that period of time. So at that point, it's paid for, and everything that you get for, for from it beyond that is free. And uh, anyone can golf says, don't go cheap on a pH meter. They crap out. Spend about 35 on one, and you'll avoid headaches. Yeah, I would agree. Um, again, I don't really test pH, because I can tell you my pH is. It's 7.6 out of the faucet. And I can sit there, and I can fight that all day long, or I can say, hey, arugula, lettuce, and all these other things grow great in it, so I don't need to worry about it. Uh, Ecomast has the first question I'm going to hit here. It says, can your veg benefit from adding silica silicate blasts to a hydroponic system? I don't really know. Um, probably. I will tell you that biology, despite a lot of mythology, is incredibly important in a hydroponic system. There is this mythology that a hydroponic system is a sterile environment. I want you to think about how stupid this is. You come to my house and you have an immunocompromising disease. And you say, I can't come to your house because I have an immunocompromising disease. And I say, come to my house. It's sterile. I haven't introduced any microorganisms to my house. Well, you would think I was an idiot. You would think I was a complete moron in full. And I did about a 23-minute rant on all the myths about hydroponics a couple, three years ago. And I have a link in today's audio notes back to that original, the episode I did it in, and the video itself. And, I, and in there, I provide sources where they have done microbiological evaluations of existing commercial hydroponic systems where they've never intentionally induced any microbiology. They are beyond the microbiology that's in soil. They have equivalent microbiological diversity to compost, well-made organic compost. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. I have this high oxygen environment. I have a symbiotic relationship with plants. It's always moist and it's always warm. You're going to get biology in a system like that. And as long as we keep good oxygen in our systems, we're going to have aerobic bacteria and fungi. And so there's a tremendous amount. So... One of the things I've been experimenting lately with is like indigenous microorganism capture and stuff like that. I learned a lot about it at the TSP workshop from Matt Powers and Steven Reisner. And here's an example of what this biology does. So I have a tank that's supposed to be like one of my best planted tanks I've ever done. Dirt bottom fish tank. This is just like tropical fish. And when I built the dirt bottom, there was a CO2 buildup and I use a sand cap on the bottom of the substrate and a bloop happened, and some of the soil got up into the water column, and it's been giving me fits with algae. And what I really needed to do to fix it quickly was completely break it down and start over, and I didn't want to do it. Well, I took some of the IMO, uh, liquid IMO, that they made, and I put a quarter cup of it into that tank, and I'm looking at it right now, and it's clearing all the excess algae out of it. So I would totally take something like, lab, which is lacto uh, lactobacillus, la- lactoacid b- bacteria uh, that we make for Korean natural farming and add some of that to a hydro system. Not a lot, just a little bit. And I would totally take things like an IMO inoculum or other proactive uh, beneficial colony forming bacteria or uh, microazole fungi and add it to a system. And I can tell you um, flat out, 100%. That, that is a myth that this stuff doesn't work. And and I had that corrected for me long before I got into this because I believed it. And I got on the air and I said, you know, that they're sterile. And a guy emailed me said it is not, and I can prove it. And I said, do it. He said, here's a picture of some peas growing in my hydroponic system. And this is a conventional system. There's I didn't do any organic additions whatsoever. Look at the roots, and the roots were covered in nitrogen-fixing bacteria nodules. Now, a pea cannot fix nitrogen. Some people think, well, peas and beans fix. No, they don't. They don't fix nitrogen. They form a symbiotic relationship with specific bacteria that attach to their roots, and the bacteria fix the nitrogen, and both the plant and the bacteria obtain nitrogen from that along with other plants in the system when those roots die back and that nitrogen is released and the plants no longer have the symbiotic relation or the bacteria no longer have, no longer have a symbiotic relationship. So how can you have a sterile environment if you have nitrogen fixing bacteria on the roots of plants in the system? And the answer is you can't. So I think enhancing that biology. So any fo- like another thing that I would have no qualms adding is to make a little compost extract. And I'm talking like a half gallon of water and a handful of compost in a paint strainer bag and stick it in there and, and like you're making tea and mix it up with your hand and then dump a cup or two of that into your hydro system. I, I think that would have an, a tremendous boost on the performance, and I will be trying it this year. Let's see what else I have for questions. Um, anyone can go off again and ask, is Kratky the same as deep water culture? No. Deep water culture, we're moving the water some way. Deep water culture, we're either recirculating the water for oxygen or pumping oxygen into the water with an air pump. Kratky, we're only letting it drop. So, Eric, when pumping water into multiple trays at different shelf heights, do you plumb the pump outlet into each tray separately or does the top drain into the next below? It depends. And I know that a lot of times I say it depends so much that people can start to think it's just an out, a cop out. But it's not. So I have a system that's been hydro. It's been just simply irrigation of seed starts and cups with dirt. I've done multiple things with it on a stainless steel rack. And I use a 32 gallon trash can as my reserve and I pump water in it. And it has two trays that are serviced by that reservoir the water pumps and fills the one tray to overflow that tray overflows to the second tray and that tray drops back down into the reserve tank it works because of the way the system's designed it's highly probable though let's say that i've had four trays i would probably need two reservoirs or i would need staggered time pumps because I'm going to take too much, too much fluid out of the reservoir during the cycle of the system. So I want one system to be on for 15 minutes, off for 15 minutes. Then the next system on for 15 minutes and off 15 minutes for my hour would be one way that I would run a system like that. Each tier, do I have a single big grow bed or do I have multiple grow beds? The more places I create interconnections, the more points of failure. So if I have four beds on one level and they're all like daisy chained together on the return and that's overflowing to another tier, I really have to think about what I'm doing. What I'm going to have to do to minimize potential errors is slow the flow just enough. So it, it all depends how I'm going to design that. And I think you're going to find that for every time the answer is, for every time the answer is, uh, A, There's going to be equal number of times the answer is B with a true it depends question. And this is really one of those. So it all has to do with how big is your reservoir? How tall is your reservoir? How high are the tiers in your system? How many individual grow beds are in there? And how did you design it for most of you doing like an indoor system with like two tiers? You probably can get away with the first tier overflowing the second tier back to your reservoir but really think about it depending on what you're doing. Really think about it depending on what you're doing. And, again, I am hugely a proponent in these indoor small-scale systems using an air pump-driven system and not plumbing anything. I want you to think about this. So let's say I have a shelf that has two grow shelves that I can grow in. And I have this little Rubbermaid tub here. This is 12 bucks. Now I got to put a bulkhead in it. That's six bucks. I need a bulkhead for the other one to connect the two together. That's another six bucks. Now I have a pipe going from one to the next and I should theoretically be able to fill this one and they should fill uniformly and overflow uniformly. So now I need water out of the, I need another bulkhead. That's another six bucks. How many points of failure are there for one tier now? Because I have two of these. What if I have three? What if I have four? What if I have six? Where all I need is enough air delivery. If there's two of these, one pump will easily do two of these. One pump will probably do four. You know, that's something you can always add a pump. So buy what you need, try it, and, and add to it if you feel that you need to. Um, so I really don't like first-timer indoor using a flow return system Unless you're doing it for a reason. I want to show you something right now. I kind of save this to the end. And I do have a link to the people that make this. A listener sent this to me. This is one of these kits that I'm usually not a huge fan of. Okay. It um, they, they looks like PVC pipe, but it's designed as a kit. You have water flow in. Now, the one on Amazon that I have a link to. I'm going to actually pull that one up. This is this is how they sell it. They basically have the rack is built out of PVC as well. I hate this. And I'll tell you why I hate this. Where do my lights go in this system? If I have enough ambient light, and I probably don't unless I make this an outdoor system, in which case this low-end PVC is probably going to break down and become brittle in a season or two, then I have no place for my lights. But... When this guy sent me this picture, and I saw how well this was working for him. So that's on one of those baker's racks, basically. And these are about 32 inches lo- wide. So that's probably a 36-inch baker's rack. And you can see how he's got it set. And he's got a – it looks like a Rubbermaid tub at the bottom there. It's actually an InstaView tub that he has there at the bottom. And you can see his growth is beautiful and it, this system comes with everything, and what I mean by everything is that it it I uh, didn't switch tabs again. Um, do you tap? No. Okay. Yeah. There we go. So if you look down at the bottom, there's this there's this tank, that's where his pump is, and then these are all interconnected and flowing, and they're going to run a very slow flow. And this system is set up by default. I think it says it runs five minutes or 10 minutes every hour. And that is all you need. And this is a NFT style system, which means it's basically just flowing across the roots. It's very well done. And I do not recommend that you build a system like this out of PVC pipe at all anymore. That I, I definitely recommend you buy something purpose built like this system. And this is a modular system. I'm sure you can configure it differently using the parts included to how many per row and stuff. And and here's why. PVC is stupid expensive now. I don't think you could buy that much 2-inch pipe, the associated fittings and reducers for 109 bucks. What that system actually includes is the pump, the timer, everything. That has it has everything in it. So here it has a little bitty pump, it has the rack the, uh, the the power adapter and the timer all integrated together. Uh, I do not think it has that little bucket down there. I don't think that comes with the system. But the timer, the uh, power adapter, and the little DC pump that runs it, everything's included. So um, I, I would definitely consider this for an indoor system, even though I said not to do a pump in return. So... Let me read some other questions, and then we're going to wrap up for the day. Ernie says, have you ever tried using fogponics with the ultrasonic foggers for nutrient delivery? I saw some studies, the way to deliver water and nutrients. So I want to try it. I think you should try it. I have not done it. I probably won't. And the reason that I probably won't is this isn't my thing. I think a lot of people think when I do a thing, I teach it, and I learn about it, and I become pa- – about everything I touch it with. I use hydroponics, exactly what we're talking about today. To grow some winter greens and to start plants. That's pretty much it. Everything else I do soil-based and I do aquaponics. But I think that's a fantastic, especially if you're thinking small-scale commercial, it's definitely a road to travel and to learn about. And basically what he's talking about is in these grow towers and other systems they have, basically like a fog will form around the roots. Fogger will form the roots and deliver nutrient without that actually sitting in liquid. It's a very efficient way to go. Ecomouse says, thoughts on incorporating agrivoltaics using LED spectrum harnessing solar panels. Uh, new tech engineering showed recently looks promising. No idea about that. None. I think if you want to do it, you should try it. Um, LED spectrum harnessing solar panels. What does that mean? Does it mean it's like a a light that just takes the sunlight and like a tube light in a house? I'm really not familiar with that. Uh, if you want to run on solar, you run on solar. That's so I think it's more like the the first one there you came out. So you want to clear that up for me, I will uh speak to it after I tell you about our item of the day today. And our item of the day today fits today's show well. These are uh grow hangers. Uh these are for hanging your lights, adjustable grow light rope hangers. I have one here in my hand right here. They work really well. They come to about a dollar fifty a piece. Uh, You can pull on one side and they simply will uh, Bring your lights uh, higher up and then there's a release button on them And you can push the button and you can lower your lights back down This is actually really cool and it's really important because when you're doing uh, Hydroponics You want your lights as close to your plants as possible and as your plants grow you want to bring the lights up so you probably want the lights maybe a couple inches over your seeds when they first start, but you never really want the plant into the light. So this makes that really easy. They're also, I've heard from a lot of people that have bought them. They use them for like hanging waters and feeders for their chickens and things like that to keep them off the ground. And then you can control uh, the height. There's a video in my write up today. Definitely check these things out. Uh, I do recommend a specific manufacturer that I've bought from and I like the quantity deal you get on them. But if they sell out, Guys, this is one of those products, like, sometimes I'm like, buy this product from these people every time. This is an off-the-shelf, kind of generic, chop shop manufactured product. It's cheap, it's low-end, but sometimes cheap and low-end is all you need. And when you're holding up grow lights that weigh less than a pound, you need something that works, it's cheap, and it's easy to adjust. These are fantastic, and they have made my life with my seed starting systems, my hydro systems, all of it, just better. Remember, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping beginning at tspaz.com. With that, I think I've wrapped everything up today. Uh, We are back to our regularly scheduled programming under the new schedule. Just as a reminder, Monday through Thursday are pretty typical. We have a Just Jack show on Mondays. Uh, Tuesdays, we also will tend to have a Just Jack show, though I think we're going to go to every other week doing two interviews. Dorothy and I have been talking about that because we have a lot of interviews coming in and we're already booking in January. So trying to keep that schedule up, maybe giving me uh, a week with one interview, a week with two, a week with one. We're going to go to that. Uh, Wednesdays are always interview days. Thursday's expert counsel Q&A. And then Friday, we're doing the Friday flashbacks, rewinds of all the interviews I've ever done. And right now we're doing interviews from 2009. It's pretty cool. There's a tremendous Amount of information, a wealth of knowledge back there. And this is a way to make sure that information doesn't just lay in a dusty archive. And I've really, I've been actually listening to these myself and enjoying the early years of of the interviews that I did. Uh, so I definitely encourage you to consider listening to those as well. Guys, reach out to me. Let me know what you want to hear about. Tell me what you want me to do a show on. Tell me, I don't want all these shows about just fill in the blank. Like, it will be somebody today. All you do is hydroponics. All you do is, I haven't done a show on hydroponics in a year, but I'll still get that. Instead of telling me what you don't want, tell me what you do. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. That's the email, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. TSPC in the subject line. That will make sure it doesn't get eaten by the spam monster, and I will do what I can to get what you want to hear on the air. Take care, guys. And even though I said we're booking in January, we are still open for booking for guests right now. If you want to be on the show, uh, I would get your guest form filled out because Dorothy will be booking you in January, and once January is full, I am closing the guest form when until mid-December. Down. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow with another one. Are they going to bail you out? just...